Hello and welcome to another episode of the Good Journey Pod. I'm your host, Brady Josephson. Every week, I get to chat with thought leaders, innovators, and marketers working in this world of good. They share more about their experience and their journey, and hopefully that will help you along yours. Today, I'm joined by Kathleen Janis. She's the author of Social Startup Success and a lecturer at Stanford University, as well as a co-founder of Spark, the largest network of millennial donors around. Uh, In the episode, Kathleen shares five key insights from her book from over 100 interviews with nonprofit leaders. She discusses what it means to scale and why some nonprofits shouldn't even try. And she also gives one great tip to people who are starting or scaling a nonprofit. I won't tell you what it is now, so you have to listen. And thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brady. So what led you to write this book, Social Startup Success? Well, I was really inspired to write Social Startup Success by my upbringing um, in a small town. My parents raised uh, my sisters and I to always be giving back and volunteering. And so we often found ourselves at soup kitchens, uh, volunteering on the weekend or at low-income health clinics. But our volunteer efforts didn't stop there. Our parents were really involved in the nonprofit community and our dinner table conversations often revolved around organizations that were struggling and trying really hard to provide these important social services to the most vulnerable people in our town. um, And yet they couldn't even get the funding in the door that they needed to make payroll. And Mm. so I always was keenly aware of the fact that we needed to not only be supporting the organizations themselves, but also the conditions to allow those organizations to not only survive, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And, And I also learned this lesson the hard way when I started my own small nonprofit in San Francisco, Spark. We we worked really, really hard to get the resources that we needed and often struggled to raise the capital that we needed to grow and to have more impact, even though we knew we were making a difference. And so Mm -hmm. I wrote this book as the playbook that I would have liked to have had Mm -hmm. when I co-founded Spark. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, I I worked for a a startup nonprofit as my first job out of grad school. So I I wish you had this playbook out when I was back then. (laughs) It would have been (laughs) would have been useful for me. It's on its way. Great. Um, you, you mentioned this kind of issue for, for nonprofits, not just startup nonprofits, but all nonprofits finding the capital to scale. And it's one of the real unique things with nonprofits where there's this split between how you get your money and then the service that you deliver. And rarely are they linked, right? Normally one's a income generator and the other one's an expense bucket. And it's this weird challenge that we have in nonprofits. Um, so how do you kind of think nonprofits should go about solving this challenge or what is, what are some of your um, interviews and research start talking about this, uh, this line between revenue generation and actual impact and the difference between them? It's a really big challenge for nonprofits. And in fact, I did an enormous survey of some of the most successful nonprofits. So these are the nonprofits that were getting the fellowships and are were 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 on the path to scale. And even those organizations, 81% of them responded that their biggest challenge that they were facing as an organization was access to capital. Hmm. That's not to mention the 
the thousands of organizations that are struggling to just get by. In fact, in my research, I learned that two thirds of nonprofits in the United States are 200,000 of the 300,000 charities are $500,000 in revenue and below. Now, many of those organizations should stay small community-based organizations and are playing an important role, but many of them are proven to have really important models that are working. And if we aren't getting those organizations funded, then we're going to have a lot of really great ideas dying on the vine. Um, Mm. And so what we have to do is we have to support the sector uh, to raise the capital that uh, organizations need to succeed. And in social startup success, the way I talk about it is uh, is funding experimentation. Organizations often uh, often think about fundraising in kind of a very formulaic way. You go to your individual donors, you go to your foundations, um, maybe you'll try some earned income. And, and really, it's what I learned in my research is that the best organizations are approaching fundraising in a much more dynamic way, using this kind of testing process to figure out very early on, what are all the things that we can try to see what's working so that we can combine both paid and um, philanthropic capital mm-hmm. um, to make up a funding model that works for that particular organization. There yeah. is no one size fits all funding model that can be applied to any organization. Every organization needs to figure out what kind of a funding model is gonna work for them. And right. so that early stage is all about testing. So on that, I'm a huge believer of testing. I absolutely agree with experimenting funding models, how what we're doing isn't kind of working so we need to try new things but as a consultant who's been trying to tell nonprofits this for years the issue that we always bump up against is uh, risk tolerance right so um, mm-hmm. if I'm just barely getting by how as a nonprofit can I devote resources into experimenting with something where if it doesn't work out we might be done so that's this kind of starvation cycle trap that many nonprofits find themselves in and they convince themselves that they can't experiment. Did you run into that kind of mindset or this lack, uh, lack of risk tolerance and, and how do you think we can get around it? Well, absolutely. Uh, the risk tolerance levels have to be <laughs> low for nonprofits in some ways because um, because they're dealing with such scarce resources uh, that they don't ha- really have the option to just throw money at problems and, and try and see what works. Yeah, but the right. good news is that testing does not have to be expensive and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to um, cost money. And when it comes to fundraising in particular, What's exciting is that, you know, we're talking about revenue generation. So it's putting resources and time and toward ideally things that are going to bring activities that are going to bring money in the door. And so mm-hmm. the more that you can test out different things that that will bring that capital through the door, the um, the more ch- likely you will be to um to increase your fundraising. So let me give you an example. Hot Bread mm-hmm. Kitchen is this amazing organization out of New York that serves low-income women and, and provides job training for women who want to be in the food industry. 
when they founded the organization, they thought, okay, we're going to raise 100% of our money off of earned income. We're going to have a cafe that's going to bring in money from the bread that women are baking. And um, that'll, you know, we'll be able to help fund the job training program. Then they had a wholesale program where they were selling their bread products to Whole Foods and JetBlue and big retailers like that. That was bringing in a certain percentage of income. Then they had a, a certain percentage of their income coming from this small incubator that was allowing uh, small bakers to uh, to make their food that they could sell in smaller venues like farmers markets. Cool. So all this money was coming in. They were really excited that they were going to be you know 100% sustainable, and they realized very quickly that actually they were selling themselves short by relying 100% on earned income, that what they really needed to do was to, they had all these philanthropic donors who wanted to be involved. And by not accepting that philanthropic capital, they were actually preventing the program from really being as extensive as it could. So for example, providing childcare to the women who were participating in the program Mm -hmm. or making the program a little bit longer, even um, maybe it was necessarily a profitable thing to do, but ultimately better for the women um, who would have longer, better longer term outcomes in terms of job placement and longevity. So if they had not gone through this testing process where they had rigorously tested all of these different revenue generation opportunities, Mm -hmm. then they wouldn't have been able to figure that out and ultimately grow the program to um, the organization that it is today, which is over $2 million in revenue. So um, so that's just an example of how, uh, when possible, testing both earned income and philanthropic sources of capital can ultimately lead to um, a really strong model that will help p- lay the foundation for scale. Yeah. And um, a lot of times in the, in the fundraising world, we talk about diversification, and it's normally within the just philanthropy so individuals corporate and foundations and then maybe even within individuals you get into things like sustainers or monthly or recurring versus majors and mid-level and kind of you know together this makes the mix but uh i think we don't think enough about earned income opportunities so like the nonprofit that nonprofit that i worked at just spun off their travel arm so we used to do donor trips they just kind of spun it off and now they facilitate donor trips for companies to visit their programs and they take a fee for kind of the facilitation. And they learned that through kind of figuring out, man, these trips are really useful. I don't think we're, we're selling ourselves short there. And so now they're doing more of an earned income approach. And I think if organizations really thought about it, they probably have more opportunities to do some earned income than, than they even thought. Yeah. And I, I give a whole bunch of ideas for how to think about earned income in the book. It's not for every single organization. There are certain uh, issue areas like human rights or uh, criminal justice where those organizations are going to be much less likely to charge their beneficiaries fee-for-service because Mm -hmm. their beneficiaries don't have access to capital. Um, But where possible, of course, it can only help enhance the organization's fundraising. Mm -hmm. Um, you use the term scale and scaling a lot. So just, uh, I want to talk more about that, but how do you define scale or, or scaling like in the book or in the context of this conversation? Well, this might not be a very satisfying answer, but <laughs> I think that every organization has to determine its mm-hmm. own definition of scale. As I said earlier, certain organizations are 
going to be really uh, useful and valuable to communities at a community-based level. And those organizations are not going to scale into other communities because it works for whatever reason, because of the unique circumstances of that community in particular. Other organizations have models that are really, really effective and can be applied on a national basis. Uh, An amazing organization uh, that I interviewed was Genesis Works, which is an internship program founded by Rafael Alvarez out of uh, Houston. And they do summer internships for low-income students and have uh, a huge percentage of those students who go on to college and eventually get jobs that they might not otherwise have had uh, but for that internship program. Mm -hmm. That was a program that worked really well with companies in Houston and also works really well with companies in New York and San Francisco and other locations where they are at. Other organizations like At the Crossroads, an organization that serves homeless youth in San Francisco, which I feature in the book, are amazing organizations, but they're amazing organization. It's an amazing organization for the city of San Francisco and for Mm -hmm. serving the youth on the streets in the city of San Francisco. And for them, their definition of skill is going deeper and trying to serve hundreds of more youth in San Francisco, not thousands of more youth all across the United States because they've really figured out where their niche is and how they need to go deep here. So I think every organization needs to be conscious of what scale means to them um, and be honest about it. Because I think Mm -hmm. often in today's world, we think bigger is better. If an organization is bigger, it's going to have more impact. That's not always true. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. One of the the organizations that uh, I love the most and have been very involved with is uh, they do education in Rwanda. And one of the things I've loved about them is they just like, we know Rwanda inside and out and we're going to transform the education system. That's it. So Mm -hmm. Burundi and other countries are interested and they've just said like, nope, nope. You know, building schools. Nope. We don't build schools. They've been so focused on just this one issue and it's helped them immensely. And they've stayed around a million, million and a half, you know, organization. And so the Mm -hmm. like consultant side is like, Oh, you could do so much more on maybe like the fundraising, but they're letting their programs dictate and they're saying, no, this is what we need to go deeper. And that discipline of always really uh, respected because bigger isn't always uh, better. Um, mm-hmm. So there's kind and of absolutely, and knowing, knowing who you are as an organization and right. what your strength is, is what's critical. Yeah. And I mean, not too dissimilar from uh, small business, like finance is often what kills startups and small business and finance is what often kills startup nonprofits or nonprofits who've been around and try to go into a growth stage, if they don't have the funds in hand or a solid plan, then you get, you know, six months, a year into a scale up project and you run out of money. Well, then you're done. So why did you try to scale up in the first place? And often it's just a a big vision, right? We got this big, bold vision and it's, but there's Mm -hmm. no concept or, or solid plan on kind of how to fund it. So even if you do have a program and want to scale, how do you go about kind of laying the the bricks or the foundation to kind of fund it or be able to pull it off? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, in the small business context, I think a great analogy is the, the small mom and pop corner stores. You know, there is a role for those mom and pop stores. Um, There is also a role for bigger big box stores like Target and Walmart. <laughs> right. and, and so organizations need to know, you know, are you 
what are you <laughs> and yeah. who, who are you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think too many people don't see the value uh, in the, the small mom and pop shop and it mm-hmm. gets them in trouble, right? It, it really, instead of just trying to be a better mom and pop shop or maybe one more corner right. store, it, they, they want to be the next World Vision or Salvation Army or this kind of thing. And it doesn't really yeah. do anyone a lot of favors because the people that you're trying to get on board are like, either they don't believe you or they don't trust the vision or you try to grow too soon. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a interesting challenge that not a lot of nonprofits need to scale and then how they go about it isn't always, uh, always easy. Um, mm-hmm. So diving more into the, to the book and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. I'll stop kind of expressing <laughs> views. Um, what were some of the, the kind of key strategies or traits you found amongst uh, these nonprofits that, that did find a way to scale? So there's five findings that I talk about in the book based on my 100 interviews with social entrepreneurs, their teams, their beneficiaries, their funders, that all of these organizations tended to do well in the very early stages in particular Mm. that helped them lay the foundations for uh, ongoing success. And in the book, I define that as $2 million dollars and Bob, which to be honest, isn't really scale. I think it's just a place where organizations can become more sustainable and mm-hmm. um, less month to month operating in the nonprofit starvation cycle, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the strategies I talk about in the book are first that they tend to test their ideas very early on before they go out and raise money. And this is really important, not only because it gives them some results to talk about when they go out to talk to funders and then they're able to then get funded because they're showing that their program is working, but Mm -hmm. also because it sets into motion this culture of innovation that helps them constantly be improving Mm -hmm. upon their program as they grow. The second trend I saw is that the organizations that tended to scale more quickly said that they began measuring their impact from the very start of the organization. Hmm. And this is really critical because if you want to get funded in today's day and age, you have to be able to show that you're having an impact and you have to be able to use data to show that. And it's also um, important because when I went out and talked to organizations, they weren't doing this impact measurement to satisfy donors, although that was an important byproduct of measuring data, but it was really because they wanted to make sure that their programs were actually working and that we all need to be focused not only on proving our impact, but improving our work. And so using that impact data to constantly be getting better at what we do. Right. The third, which I touched on earlier, is this concept of funding experimentation, using a combination of earned income and philanthropic capital to come up with a funding model that is right and suited for the cause. For the organizations, contrary to what we think of when we think about the hero leader, the organizations that really succeed do so based on a really distributive model of leadership that values everybody on the team, that bring your leadership early so that this founder can go out and raise money and focus on the strategy and the vision that 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 flips the hierarchical pyramid on its face and puts um 
puts the staff really on on the front lines and values them for their contribution to the mission and then engages their board of directors in meaningful ways and develops a strong board chair ed partnership to take the organization to the next level mm-hmm. and then finally the fifth strategy that they talk about is storytelling with purpose we all i think have this tendency to hear a great political speech or a great uh, TED talk and think, wow, that person's just a natural. But when I went out to talk with people who had given these TED talks or these great speeches, they said, you have no idea how much coaching I got to make that speech. I have one friend mm-hmm. who uh, is the founder of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco, Nadine Burkera, said by the time she gave her TED talk, which now has 3 million views and is going to be coming out with a book soon, by the time she gave that talk, she she said her husband could have practically given it for her. She had practiced it so many times. <laughs> and what the organizations that succeed figure out is that storytelling is critical to building mm-hmm. a movement. Yeah. And that you could be you could be selling the word of God and it would mean nothing if you weren't able <laughs> to tell it in a way that was gonna um resonate with your audience and so those organizations really focus on practicing not only for the leadership but thinking of absolutely every person at every level in the organization whether it's staff senior leadership board beneficiaries even as advocates as as potential brand ambassadors and you have to equip them with the tools that they need to tell the stories that are going to sell the organization's mission yeah Uh, yeah so those are the five strategies that I talk about in the book and um, and extrapolate on on more in social startup success. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Again, thank you for writing that book. It's uh, <laughs> it's super useful. I'm consulting a startup nonprofit right now and just wrote down a few notes like ah oh, impact and measurement. Um, you yeah. know, it's frustrating because like great, you're doing good work. Like there's very few nonprofits that aren't doing good work or trying to do good work. It's how do you do great work and then how do you prove it to me that you're doing good work? Because Mm -hmm. just saying that you do good work and even now just even telling like a short story or here's Maria who didn't read and now she can read like that's that's great. But, you know, every organization for the most part can do that. So there's this whole Mm -hmm. element of kind of how do you now stand out? And that story piece is 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 amazing. And it's a huge opportunity now, like years ago, if you were a startup nonprofit, like I can't even imagine how to scale a nonprofit 30 years ago. Like, what would you have mm-hmm. to do? Because you'd have to have like networks or like you, you just have to hustle. Whereas now, you know, not that it happens all the time, but you could just have this awesome website story funding mechanism and you could be on your way. Like there's so much uh, upside opportunity for nonprofits nowadays. And a lot yeah. of it does revolve around a story that people can connect with and share with their friends and family. There are. And and yet the flip side of that is there are so many opportunities to get just totally drowned out mm. by the news cycle, uh, by Facebook, by social media, um, and also, frankly, by your data. I mean, that's mm. one of the challenges that, that nonprofits face. 75% of nonprofits say that they're doing a good job collecting data. So that's not the problem. People have the data. Only 6% of those people think that they're making good use of that data. (laughs) So it's figuring out, you know, what are the key levers that we need to be uh, managing and um, what are the key performance indicators to show 
um, whether what you're doing is working and to use your example um, of the girl who couldn't read and now she's reading, really pressure testing that and saying, is she reading because she was also, you know, supported by a family that mm. was helping her at night and that, you know, she happened to have a really good teacher who helped take an interest in her and helped get helped her get over the hump? Or is it because of your program? Yeah. And being honest about that, because I think people like to tell great stories, but oftentimes they're they're not really interested in testing that counterfactual. Like, is it really because of our our intervention? Yeah. Um, and getting beyond one of the things I talk about in the book is getting beyond this idea of outs or vanity metrics, like yeah. how are how many people are participating in our programs to outcomes? How are our programs actually impacting the lives of the people that we serve? Um, and 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 getting more sophisticated about the impact measurement is critical because a we need to be make we we can't waste resources we need to be as efficient as possible with the resources that we have in the nonprofit sector mm. um but also because funders are getting savvy to these things yeah and um you have to be able to collect great data and tell a great data story if you want to get funded yeah and one of the best things i've heard recently about talking uh, discussing this kind of impact because that last piece is often the hardest part, right? So you can, you can track inputs, money, you can track outputs spent. Maybe you can track outcomes like number of kids who now go to read, but that's still not impact. So more kids read, what does that mean, you know, for what you're trying to do? So it's that impact. And that's, what's often mm -hmm. really hard. And this person was talking about impact measurement and saying like, don't make it harder than it is like borrow from someone else's study. For example, like if someone's done a longitudinal study saying kids who know how to read, before they're in kindergarten, I actually think this is a real stat. People who, kids who can read uh, by the time they're six or seven or something like that are like exponentially more likely to graduate high school or something. Like it's this key point. Someone found that stat. So you don't necessarily need to track your own kids mm -hmm. <laughs> throughout the next 12 years of their lives to go back and say, see, we told you like someone's done that longitudinal research. And as long as it's, you know, good, now you can have an impact statement by saying, you know, if we can increase the readership of kids before six, we'll increase the likelihood of graduation by X percent, like, and then back it up with a source. But you don't have to do all of the work by yourself. Like there's other research partners, yeah. there's other things that you can tap into. And just hearing that, my stress level went way down. And I think a lot of other people in the room are like, oh, we don't have to do everything by ourselves. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And and that is actually something that I talk about in the book is how to leverage other people's research. The mm. other thing I talk about in the book is how to boil down your data to two or three things that matter mm -hmm. uh, and, and not be overwhelmed by the countless things that you could be measuring, but really focusing your impact measurement for example, Braven, an organization that supports low-income college students to get jobs after college. They, when they started the program, 
had no idea whether people were going to be graduating for four years, let alone whether they'd get a job and whether they'd stay in that mm -hmm. job. That was going to be a long-term proposition. So yeah. they had to figure out what are a few things that we can measure that will show us whether we are having a propensity toward impact. So for mm -hmm. example, they started testing, uh, tracking attendance to see whether someone would have a propensity to graduate. They started tracking whether the mentors of these students would recommend them for a job to track whether they had a propensity to actually get a job after school. So thinking about what those two or three uh, impact measurement um, statistics are that matter is, yeah. is really critical. Even huge organizations, like uh, there's an amazing organization called New Teacher Center that does focuses on mentoring of new student, new teachers in the state of California and now all over the country. That's, that's a $30 million organization that has served thousands of teachers over the years, and they have multi-million dollar impact measurement program that collects data um, all over the map. Mm -hmm. But really what it boils down to when you go to their website is, are the teachers that participate in their programs more likely to stay? in the classroom. That's right. it. So it's, you know, they can show that the teachers who participate in the in in their programs are 30% more likely to stay in the classroom and that's mm. what matters to them. Yeah. So figuring out what those those statistics are that are going to be digestible to your audience whether it's funders or partner organizations or beneficiaries is really critical. Yeah. No, I I love that and you're now borrowing from your your Silicon Valley ex experience, right? With like the lean startup and one metric that matters and the lean canvas mm -hmm. and all that stuff, which I think is super useful, especially today with all the, the data. I know in, in fundraising, f for me, when it comes to the fundraising side, I go transactions and lifetime value. Like you can yep. track a ton of other stuff, but if you get more transactions, you'll get more money, you'll get more donor retention. And then the other thing to focus on is lifetime value. If you, all you focused on was transaction lifetime value, you'd be fine. You don't need to get mm -hmm. bogged down in all this other crazy stuff. Uh, anyways, um, for someone who's listening, maybe thinking about starting a nonprofit or has started a nonprofit or is looking to to scale, other than those like read your book and those five strategic frameworks, do you have any kind of like quick tips or advice for them? Well, I think my biggest piece of advice is to focus on the strategy. I think we all have this tendency to think that the charismatic leaders win and mm. there's this great classic business book by Jim Collins good to great which talks about CEOs and talks about how actually it's not the charismatic CEOs that win it's the super boring ones that put their heads <laughs> down and get the work done and the same is true in the nonprofit sector i did over 100 interviews of nonprofit leaders and i kept waiting for someone to say you know it's just a charismatic leader or a brilliant idea or grit or some sort of innate trait that makes an organization succeed or fail yeah. but no one said that it was actually it was actually that it comes down to these certain strategies that organizations must implement if they want to build a successful organization. And to me, that's super exciting for the sector because we need strong organizations. We have limited resources, but these strategies don't require 
resources to get off the ground. You can test, yeah. you can measure, you can uh, you can lead without having millions of dollars at your fingertips to develop right. super sophisticated programs to do that. And so that I think is a real equalizing force for the nonprofit yeah. sector and for anyone who wants to get a nonprofit off the ground. Yeah, no, that's that's a great reminder. Thanks for sharing that. Um, well, thanks for all your time today. And I'm sure we could chat forever and ever <laughs> about this stuff. Um, well, where can people find out more about you and your book? You can find out more about me at KathleenJanis.com. And the book is Social Startup Success. And it's available at your favorite retailer starting January 16th. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to check it out and recommend it, I'm sure. And thanks again for taking time. Thanks so much, Brady. Thanks again for listening to The Good Journey Pod, a nonprofit supply company production. Be sure to subscribe and get all the past, present, and future podcasts at thegoodjourneypod.com. And you can get more resources and exclusive content by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Nonprofit Supply. Good luck on your good journey.